Hello and welcome to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, a podcast in which I talk about my life and career as a successful comedy writer in British television. I'll also talk about my interests and inspirations and chat with the occasional guest. If you enjoy the podcast, don't forget to share it and give us a five-star review. To find out more about me or to order any of my books, please check out my website. All the links are in the podcast notes. Also, if you've got any questions you'd like me to answer in a future episode, then go to the Contacts tab on steamspokenmirrors.com. And I hope you enjoy this week's episode. This week we go behind the scenes with one of our most versatile and enduring broadcasters. He is a national radio disc jockey, newsreader, and was part of the team that helped maintain Wake Up to Wogan as Radio 2's flagship show. On TV, he presented the forerunner to Strictly. He was the extra voice of the balls on the National Lottery Live and the announcer on Paul Daniels' primetime quiz hit, Wipeout. He's currently the host of The Breakfast Show on Scala Radio, and without doubt, he would have made this introduction sound so much better than it did. Please welcome the instantly recognisable Charles Nove. Well, hey, how very nice to uh, to be here. And before I tell you what, before we go any further, Colin, uh, may I say a big up to you for what you've done with the podcasts, which have been brilliant listening, I think, uh, and with the books. Because uh, I was thinking, you know, you said in, in well, I think you said in more than one episode of it, you know, that everyone you used to write for is dead. And <laughs> um, there are people and we know people, you know, who would have taken that as a uh, as a prompt to retreat to bitter corner and just sit there crying in their beer and, and moaning about how much better everything used to be. Uh, uh, but you haven't done that. You've uh, repurposed and refocused yourself and, and done new things. And it's brilliant. Oh, that's very kind of you. Thank you very much. I mean, I've, as you know. I've I've always sat staring at the QWERTY keyboard. And when uh, the world of comedy and I decided to part company, I thought, oh, I want to stay with my friend, the QWERTY keyboard. And so it was, it was something to do. And quite honestly, Charles, what else am I going to do? It, except maybe on the podcasts, pretending to be you. <laughs> <laughs> and if you did retreat to bitter corner and cry in your beer, Catherine would thwack you around the head with... A rolled up script, so uh, that would deal with that. <laughs> How well you know her, because um, <laughs> uh, your voice is everywhere. I'm on radio, television, airlines. I, 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 on Emirates, you were doing, you were doing, you were giving yoga classes on Emirates. It's wonderful. I, it just it used to make me laugh. So, as someone whose voice is your fortune, do you have to look after your voice in any way? Fortune, you say? Hmm. Must have been doing something. <laughs> <right>. <laughs> um, I, t- I do take a bit of care of it. I mean, you you become a bit of a, a a lot of people in this business become a bit of a hypochondriac about anything in the upper respiratory tract. Hmm. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a very keen amateur doctor anyway. Uh, always very interested in uh, in medicine. Just never bothered with the exams and that sort of thing. Obviously, <laughs> uh, and yeah, I do take care. I mean, the the big enemies, obviously colds things like colds and flu mm. are uh, 
routine enemies in this game. And one of the unseen hazards, and one that people don't think about, is you, you, know, you go to a noisy pub or a bar, obviously this is in the days when we could, mm. uh, and you, you spend a, an evening shouting at people uh, in an attempt to maintain conversation. The next yeah. morning, you try and do a broadcast or a voiceover session or whatever, and you've either got no voice or it's hoarse or it's about three octaves deeper than it ought to be. You yeah. know, it's, you've got to watch out for that sort of thing. That's fascinating. That's, uh, I want to start with Sir Terry. Uh, how can you not? Uh, you knew him mm. as well as anybody, the great Sir Terry Wogan. You were part of the Wake Up to Wogan breakfast show on Radio 2. That must have been a heck of a show to be involved with. Yeah, I mean, technically they called it work, uh, but uh, I was never entirely convinced by the description. I mean, uh, and I, I I listened to the episode of this uh, with Alan Dedicote, and uh, you know, he was saying what a delight to get up at five o'clock in the morning and and go in and work on that show. It was it was great fun, and that is down to the man. Uh, so Terry was you know such a, an incredible character, and just always. Decent, good-humoured, polite. Uh, you know, he stuck to the uh, what, do you, what did he call them? The old decencies he used to refer to. You know, as it, but old-school politeness. I always remember the very first time I met him. It was when I came down to to London to join Radio Two in 1981, and uh, one of the uh, um, staff there, you know, was giving me the guided tour and. Um, Terry was doing the breakfast show, his first stint on the breakfast show then, but he was already an almighty star. And uh, I popped my head around the door to say hello as the, uh, as the new boy. And he jumped straight up out of the chair, extended his hand and said, hello, I'm Terry Wogan. And uh, I just, I, it's always lodged in my head that, because I thought, yeah, there's no way in a month of Sundays, I don't know who you are. But the fact yeah. that you introduce yourself says something about the man. Very classy, very elegant, very classy. And I always used to used to see, uh, you know, doing the show in the in the latter days. Generally, the studio engineers and so on, he would know by first name anyway. But on the rare occasion that somebody was rotated on whose name he didn't know, he'd make sure to ask Alan, the producer, behind the scenes for their name, so that as the show ended, once they were off air he could press the talkback button and say, thank you, Dave, or whatever. Uh, because that's no, the courtesy of the man. Yes, that's the essence of a great broadcaster. I think a star as well. Uh, in, in television studios, I work with so many people who would know the names of all the cameramen. And occasionally, uh, a slip of the memory, and for example, Bob Monkhouse would say to me, that's Nigel on camera three, yeah? Yeah, he's got the boat, yeah. So that would enable Bob to go up to Nigel on camera three and say, how's that old rust bucket of yours? Yes, yes. And of course, Monkhouse had an incredible memory anyway. He, 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 the legendary memory for the, for the jokes and so on. Didn't he have a method of remembering people's names? I, somewhere in the back of my rusting heap of a memory, I have a, I have a memory that he had some sort of method for learning people's names. There was a technique. Uh, I remember Roger Fenner saying that he was talking to someone in a, oh gosh, a sound studio, one of the sound engineers. And Bob remembering that he'd, the sound engineer had had an accident and, and went into sound and said, you know, how are you? And, and the accident was six months ago, but somehow he remembered it. It's extraordinary. He, oh, what, a, what Bob did do, and it was one of the Monkhouse shows that I didn't 
actually work on because I was doing something else. Granada show called Monkhouse's Memory Masters. Instantly forgettable. No one remembers that series at all. <laughs> but it was called Monkhouse's Memory Masters. And uh, it was to do with memory techniques of learning. And it was a most peculiar quiz show. I would say, though, rather than using techniques, he just had a flypaper memory. Everything stuck. It was absolutely extraordinary. But we, di we digress. We digress uh, from, from, from very unlike us. Uh, yes, I, I, I'd like to get back on track with Sattel, if I may, because not only was he a consummate gentleman and a, uh, an extraordinary professional, he had this well-read eloquence. Uh, Ray Moore had it. Uh, Ken Bruce has got it. You've got it. Uh, Graham Norton's got a, an eloquence to their language, and and um, and Paul O'Grady. Um, and I, I think that sets those broadcasters at a slightly higher level. Would you agree? Well, I, um, I'm very honoured to be associated in, uh, in such company. But yes, I mean, good use of language is, uh, is certainly a big part of making a broadcaster interesting, isn't it? And uh, yeah. so Terry was never lost for a, a well-honed phrase. And of course, uh, you know, people may have thought that uh, some of these were carefully rehearsed, but uh, far from it. He couldn't, there's one thing he couldn't stand was rehearsing. And you will have seen this on, on telly shows. And I know it, it used to make some of television production pull their hair out uh, because television doesn't do very well with no rehearsal because there are so many people involved and people need to know where you're going to stand and what you're going to say and when this is going to happen and so on. Mm. Uh, radio, of course, is much easier for one person just to make something happen. And, uh, you know, Terry, I think in that respect, preferred radio. Obviously, career-wise, television was where he needed to be, uh, but radio allowed him that immediacy. Television used to ask him to rehearse and he would resist, resist, resist. Yes, yes. I remember he, he would, when he did a couple of, oh, he did about a month on the National Lottery Live, did a stint. And after a couple of shows, he said to Peter Estel, in my company you know peter he said oh, the show's on at eight and it's live maybe i could just walk in at about seven o'clock <laughs> which would see the color drain from peter estel's face <laughs> yeah because you know for anybody uninitiated in the in the world of television a live transmission at eight o'clock they'd probably have the full studio crew called by two yeah oh gosh when i when i did it on a regular basis we were in for 11 quite frankly uh, but that's as maybe um terry's radio two show was an escapist world of whimsy i would contend and he surrounded himself with uh, consummate professional broadcasters but he, he always imposed an extra character on those broadcasters i'm minded of 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 boggy marsh and uh, yeah and De deadly allencote and and uh, lynn bowles was was the totty the travel totty the totty from splotty if I recall, yeah, and he had a he had a particular name for you. He had uh, more than one. I was often known as Chazanova, mm. uh, which I quite liked, yeah. I think. Uh, but uh, I, I was periodically known, uh, particularly in the latter years, as as the Phantom Bus Crasher, uh, <laughs> owing to a an incident, <laughs> an incident that became heavily distorted in the telling. But then, all the inc all the incidents did. I mean, it's a wonderful thing about Terry and his audience. Uh, the core audience of that shows uh, the, the, of that show, the Togs. Um, you know, they they wore absurd pseudonyms, 
and they grasped at any any little straw of, of potential absurdity in a mm. story would be taken and developed. And uh, the, the the bus incident, uh, in my case, a perfect example. Mm. Uh, the I'll I'll give you the gospel on this. Uh, I was driving a bus, a Routemaster bus, in the London New Year's Day parade. And uh, we were in parade order, trundling along very slowly. And at one point, the parade stopped, and uh, I stopped. But the 1926, I think it was, vintage fire engine that was following behind didn't stop because the bloke's foot uh, slipped off the pedal. Mm -hmm. Uh, So we got walloped in the rear end by... A Dennis fire engine from 1926, <laughs> which made huge holes in the aluminium bus from the 1960s. And uh, it was all a bit of a mess and uh, very embarrassing uh, all around, especially for the awfully nice chap from Imperial College driving their vintage fire engine. Uh, anyway, it made the papers, no names attached, but the story of an incident involving a vintage bus being rammed by a fire engine made the papers. And uh, a listener, I think, on the Monday morning uh, sent in some reference to this uh, to Terry and said, we want to know if Chazanova was involved. And there was just, as he read it out, there was just a slight silence and he, he caught the look on my face. He said, it was, it was you, wasn't it? It was, And <laughs> it mushroomed from there. So before you know it, uh, the story had legs and wheels and uh, it had developed to such an extent that I had reversed the bus into a fire engine. <laughs> and caused this complete havoc you know and it just grew from there but it it gained such incredible currency and it it tells you something about the striking power of a show like that yeah some months later i think it was i was on a tour of a magistrate's court i I had not been taken there in handcuffs i was on a a voluntary tour i was gone to see the workings of the magistrate's court at uxbridge and uh, I was taken into the retiring room where the magistrates all go and uh, consider their verdict and, more importantly, have tea and coffee. And uh, the, I was you know, shown around and shown what went on, shown the cells and everything. But in the retiring room, the senior magistrate said, what I really want to know is, did you really reverse the bus into that fire engine? The reach of the Wogan show is mm. incredible. And, of course, I should point out at this moment that you didn't have another job as a bus driver on the Route 52 when when times were hard and friends were few and, and, and work was lean. No, you actually were the part owner of uh, uh, an AEC Routemaster bus, which you which was a business. It was of sorts, yes. It, it was the sort of business that doesn't make any money and has to be left alone to, to moulder away uh, eventually. But it was fun while it lasted. Mm. Uh, yeah, I mean, at, at its height, we had seven of the things and we were hiring them out for special events, a lot of weddings, uh, the occasional funeral, uh, mm. various uh, party transport and so on. And uh, I mean, they, were, they were great fun to drive. And uh, this was the work of a partnership called the Broadcasters Bus Consortium. Oh, we, we never traded under the initials because we thought there might have been some sort of um, dispute with another organization. But the, uh, the history of uh, that operation was... Uh, my old friend Steve Madden, fellow broadcaster, uh, Steve had uh, since childhood been a, a bus enthusiast. He used to go around just as a little lad, um, taking bus numbers and getting photographs of them and so on. And when the Routemaster bus started to be retired from London service, Steve had said more than once in a conversation, God, wouldn't it be wonderful to think that maybe one day 
one might be able to have one. And uh, there'd be a growling noise from the corner at that point, which was Steve's <laughs> wife, who was vehemently opposed to any such nonsense. Uh, but anyway, uh, I think Steve had consigned it to the dream department. But I like, I'm a, I'm a great one for seeing if there is a practical way to make something happen. And uh, I'm also an enthusiast for any large lump of mechanical engineering, be it train, plane, ship, whatever, or bus in this case. And I thought, hmm, on a sort of mechanical interest point of view, yes, it would be great fun to have one. Let's see if we can make it happen. So we started looking and sizing up the market and so on. And we also started a, a, a real charm offensive on Steve's wife. Uh, whose, whose defences needed to be worn down. <laughs> and uh, we managed over oh, quite a few months to soften her position from it's a bus or me down to outright hostility. <laughs> so that was a, a considerable improvement. <laughs> and uh, that we found, we found the route to, to get one. Hmm. And then we thought, right, now there's just the two of us. This is bound to turn out more costly than it looks. So we need two other idiots who've got more money than sense. Who do we know? Mm -hmm. And um, so thumbing through a through a, an address book or two, Ken Bruce and Alan Dedicote were uh, identified as suitable mug uh, suitable participants <laughs> in this uh, in this great adventure. And actually, it turned out you know no one would ever have known it, but Ken was really interested in buses. And uh -huh. I've known. I've known Ken Bruce since Glasgow in 1976 or seven, and I never had a clue that he was interested at all. Uh, but it turned out he was. And he, he said very quickly when I outlined the, the thoughts to him, he said, yep, yeah, yep, yeah, sign me up. Uh, and uh, Dedicote, it turned out, was, you know, he, was, he knew all about the Midland Red buses and uh, was interested from his childhood. So uh, he was quick on the uh, joining in mark as well. So that's how the consortium came to be. That's lovely. But uh, where do you park seven route masters? That is one of the big problems. Because <laughs> uh, <laughs> they're 14 foot six high and, you know, eight foot wide and 30 feet long. Yeah. Uh, so you can't really hide them. But there are places. It, mm. it, it takes quite a bit. It, it, as time goes on, it is more and more of a struggle because, of course, um, around our towns and cities, more and more land is being developed for housing. Mm. And where housing goes, not only does the land become in shorter supply, but sensitivities arise as well about, oh, I, don't, I don't want large, smelly, honking buses down my backyard, thank you very much. Mm. Uh, so there are planning problems as well. But yeah, there are places. I mean, we started off keeping ours on a farm. Uh, it was a big dairy farm, but the bottom had dropped out of dairy farming. And the farmer was pleased to use his big industrial barns for people to keep buses in. Yeah. So you'd, you'd go onto this big farm in Buckinghamshire and uh, there'd be these huge industrial barns. But if you pulled back the sliding doors, <laughs> about mm. 30 buses in each of them. Excellent. I remember driving down the 413, the A413 in Buckinghamshire where we live and seeing uh, one of the old route masters coming the other way and thinking that's either very, very late that bus or Charles knows behind the wheel. And I used to crane over the dual carriageway to, to try and have a look because uh, you got your PSV, your public service vehicle license, didn't you, to drive one of these yes, great guns? Absolutely. Lives. And uh, I, uh, I, I've had that for quite some years now and I maintain it uh, in, in current ready to go form because it is also 
work insurance, as you know, yeah. only too well. The business is fickle mm. and at any time. Yeah. I, I, you know, such is the way. I mean, we've, the papers recently have had a lot of stories about the shortage of HGV drivers. Uh, there is also a shortage of bus drivers. And uh, with a uh, uh, current and active public service vehicle driving license, pretty well anywhere in the country, mm. you go and approach a, a local service company, they'll go, oh, yeah. Oh, wouldn't it be lovely to get on the bus and Charles knows Charles Novi's your driver. Uh, <laughs> and behind him is another bus being driven by Alan Diddicote. And behind him, uh, Charles Nove. <laughs> we, did, uh, we did do a, a job. I remember there was a wedding once in, it was in Ealing. And uh, in West London, and the duty driver that day was Ken Bruce, and the duty conductor that day was me. And it turned out the happy couple were very eager Radio Two listeners. We we didn't set it up that way; we had no knowledge. But it turned out they were. Uh, so, as you may imagine, they were a little bit surprised by the bus crew they got that day. God, what a lovely treat! Oh, what a it's it's a shame that as a consequence of COVID and various other factors that you, you don't run the business now. But what a what an ambition fulfilled. Yeah, it was um it was a great thing, a great fun thing to do. It was quite fulfilling in in many ways. I got to do quite a bit of hands-on engineering on the buses, which was um, uh, very satisfying as well. Mm. And we did a lot of transport for people's special days. In fact, the, the company slogan was Routemaster Buses for Your Special Day. Mm. And uh, there's something you know about driving a happy wedding party around, doing some sightseeing tours in London. It's a, it's a nice thing to do. It's not yeah. without its uh, stresses occasionally, though, especially if London's having a bad traffic day, uh, because something that uh, many uh, wedding organisers in particular struggle to grasp is that you can't accurately predict journey times in London. You say, well, how long will it take us to get from Mansion House to uh, Westminster Central Hall? Well, depends on the day and the time of day. You know, you can, mm. you can do it in 20 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> it might take you three hours. <laughs> yeah. So the BBC bus company was yeah, populated yes. by people who worked, who work and worked for Radio 2. And Radio 2 was really like a second home for you in your broadcasting career, wasn't it? Uh, I remember you doing uh, those through the night uh, shows on Radio 2 yeah, from, from um, Pebble Mill, if I remember rightly. Uh, yes. I mean, well, originally London, but uh, then the BBC had one of its crazy decisions. Um, this, is, this, is one, this, is, this could only happen in the BBC. The Board of Governors decided that more representation of the regions and uh, nations of the United Kingdom needed to be made on the air. Mm. It was all too London-centric. Bear in mind, they were deciding this decades ago. I mean, they're still having these discussions now. But yes, yes. So decades ago. So they said, uh, right, right, we need to, um, we need to make uh, considerable moves of uh, what's now spent in London and spend it in the regions. Okay. Uh, so they, at one point, I mean, they looked at moving the whole of Radio 2 to Birmingham at one point, and that was quickly dismissed. Then they looked at moving uh, several of the daytime shows, like what was then the Jimmy Young show, uh, to uh, Birmingham. But the point was made that most of the guests came from London, so that would be mm -hmm. uh, difficult. Mm. Uh, but the Board of Governors were leaning on Radio 2 to make significant changes towards the regions. Uh, so somebody came up with an idea 
what have we got? Bear in mind that at this point, Radio 2 had just been through quite a bit of turmoil with various schedule changes. And in radio, every time you change the schedule, the listening figures always fall because mm-hmm. you know, people uh, rearrange their, uh, their, their listening plans. Uh, so they, they started saying, well, what, what can we do that will achieve what we've been told to achieve, but without changing anything on the air? Hmm. And uh, they came up with the uh, idea that the through the night shows on Radio 2 were the simplest shows because it was just a presenter and music. Hmm. So they moved us to Birmingham. And once you're once you've established that the, the, the motive is to increase the amount spent in the regions, you realize that it doesn't matter how much the more money you throw at it, the better. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's money that's come off the London book and gone on to the regional spend book. Yeah. Uh, so they sent us up there. So the Board of Governors had their boxes ticked. Uh, the listeners noticed no difference whatsoever because the same people carried on doing the same shows, only now they were being paid mileage and overnight allowances to go to Birmingham and do them. Of course. Only in the BBC does mm. this make sense. Yeah. Also, when you were broadcasting from Pebble Mill through the night, uh I'm guessing it was just you, uh, maybe an engineer, and maybe the security man on the door who were in that entire building. The rest yeah, of the place was uh, empty. No engineer. No, just uh, just just me you driving. Or... You driving the desk, and that. Oh and, yeah, yeah. With no no backup. Uh, no, no. Just uh, just the presenter and uh, the the chaps in security and uh, with. Who were a very, uh, very entertaining bunch of slightly lugubrious brummies. Uh, they were, they were great. I remember my colleague Steve had an incident one night where uh, a potential stalker had turned up outside the building, and uh, Steve was, he was he was a little nervous about this sort of thing. Uh, but the security chaps were on the ball. They spotted this person lurking in a car, strangely close to the building in the middle of the night, and they went to investigate. And uh, they came to brief steve that there was indeed a strange uh, visitor waiting outside and they said uh, don't worry we'll get you out the back way and steve said um, oh thanks yeah i'm not i'm not really keen to uh, stand in a street in the middle of birmingham at 3 a.m uh, talking to someone i've never met about who knows what <laughs> bearing in mind he's nervous at this point the security guy goes well you're quite right mate she could have a knife she could have a gun <laughs> <laughs> You were, you've mentioned your technical interest, getting the spanners out on the buses and stuff like that, but you're also very technically savvy when it comes to audio equipment. And you were heavily involved when Radio 2 made that physical changeover from music driven on turntables in the traditional form to digitization. Yes, uh, this was, uh, now when was this? Going, dredging through my memory, this would be 1980, sort of 88, 89. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, uh, big changes were coming. There were big financial pressures at the BBC and some of the old ways of working, which had originally been driven by technical necessity, but had maybe been maintained over the years by union pressure. Mm-hmm involved some quite high uh, staffing levels for certain things, which as the technology got better, simpler, more reliable, could have been done by fewer people. Mm. And there came a turning point really during the 80s where they'd said, right, these old ways of working won't do, they're costing far too much, we've got to get with it, baby, and uh, and move on. And it had become apparent at uh, Radio 2 that we were going to go one of two ways, either the 
announcers department of which I was part, which which kind of ran things day to day, was going to be disposed of and they were going to get somebody else in to do our uh, technical roles or we were going to have to take on more of the technical roles and, and become more versatile. Mm. Uh, well, that seemed the way uh, that it ought to go, we thought, uh, in terms of our self-preservation. And uh, so I took over designing the new studios to do the job mm. with a single person operating them rather than uh, a crew. And uh, the, the big thing I had to do then was to train and convert a, a non-technical workforce to the new ways of working. And that was my big challenge of, uh, of 88, 89, really, was to design the studios, devise a training program, and, and deliver a training program uh, so that by the time we went live with the new kit, mm. the uh, existing team would be able to drive it and would be able to, you know, to, do, to carry on doing the job the way they used to, but only juggling more plates. Which must have been tough for old campaigners like Sattel, who was so used to uh, manning the wheels of steel and dropping the needle on the deck, and suddenly he's pressing buttons on a screen uh, to drive the show forward. He um, he was unaffected by these changes. He was uh, he, he was um, uh, a two person operation uh, for the for the remainder of his days. I tell you what, he was a great operator though. Um, he was no slouch whatsoever uh, on uh, operating the studio gear. Uh, he yeah he was a a nifty operator. Sometimes yeah. he pretended he wasn't and, and you know, would crash into things. But yeah. but when the chips were down, yeah, yeah. he was. Yeah. And there's an, you've just, just triggered another memory of him, which is uh, his way of keeping time during voiceover introductions to songs. Um, in, in the oldie days, uh, some people used to use a stopwatch and they'd time the intro and it's 18 seconds intro. I talk for 18 seconds. Well, that's that's rubbish in music radio because if you're doing it to a stopwatch, you're not talking in sympathy with the music. Uh, no stopwatch on Terry's front. He used to count the bars in the music and he'd keep himself on track by kicking the chair. Uh, so actually, if you were in the studio and listening, you'd hear a lot of clang, 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 clang <laughs> as his foot banged on the chair. What a lovely story. Nove, it's not a classic Scottish name, but it is memorable. Um, like, like Wogan, he's a, almost a unique name. Uh, Tarbuck, Dedicote. Nove is memorable, so it, it immediately it sets you apart in the listener's ear. So what's the derivation of Nove? Because it's such an unusual surname. Family was Novakovsky from St. Petersburg uh, until they arrived here in something of a hurry hmm. in 1923. Uh, the, the reasons for that being that my father's father was a political activist. Um, he, was a, he was a man of many parts, a sort of part-time merchant, part-time boxer, but quite busy political activist. And he was an activist on the side of the Mensheviks, who weren't the Bolsheviks. Mm -hmm. uh, when the Bolsheviks gained the upper hand in the Russian Revolution, uh, being a Menshevik became a progressively uh, more uncomfortable thing to be. Mm. And uh, he carried on with his political campaigning, and they threw him in jail. And uh, some you know, pretty ghastly, tough conditions. And after a while, they let him out of jail and said, have you stopped all this nonsense yet? And uh, he said, no, I haven't, and carried on campaigning. So they threw him in jail again. And uh, when he came out of there, I think the conversation was roughly, 
right, you either stop this nonsense or you carry on and we'll send you to Siberia for the rest of your life, which won't be very long, uh, or you can clear off out of the country and don't come back. And actually, you know, looking at the history of the things, he was pretty fortunate to be given that choice. But uh, the writing was on the wall and clearing off out the country was what he did. Uh, so, I mean, if this country, when, when stuff starts about immigration, I never lose sight of the fact that if this country hadn't flung its doors open uh, to the Novakovsky family in 1923, I wouldn't be here and neither mm. would my brothers. So, yeah, they arrived here in 1923. My father was seven at the time, and they set about uh, fitting into British society as best they could. And at some point, we're not totally sure the decision was made to contract the name to Nove, so as to sound, I suppose, less Russian. Your dad was a great academic uh, on Russian history. My research tells me I've got an echo of a memory of... Russian president saying to your dad, oh, you're Alexander Nov, you know more about the Russian economy than I do. Is that, if I made up that anecdote? No, you haven't. That is, uh, that is bang on. Yeah, that was uh, President Gorbachev uh, when Margaret Thatcher was the prime minister and she had declared Mr. Gorbachev somebody she could do business with. And as part of that, she invited uh, him and his wife and his entourage over for a visit. And they, they came to Chequers and to Downing Street. And my father was introduced to Mr. Gorbachev, I think, at the dinner at Downing Street and uh, was rather chuffed when Gorbachev said, yes, ah, you're the man who knows more about the Soviet economy than I do. That's beautiful. Yours, listening to you there, your voice is hypnotic. I'm blowing, okay, I'm blowing smoke up up. A guest I'm talking to, of course, but no, your 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 Scottish burr is hypnotic. You and Ken Bruce, there's something about that that lovely lilting Scottish, and I guess Terry had it, and Graham Norton's got it. That Irish way as well, which which makes you so significant. There's reason for me going down this route. What came first, the voice or the ambition to be a broadcaster? Um. I don't truly know, but I know the ambition to be a broadcaster started very young. And this is a pretty common tale amongst people in, in my line of work. Um, certainly by the time I was about 11 or 12, I knew what I wanted to do. And I wanted to be the man on the radio. I actually attribute some of the roots of this to having measles as a small boy, strangely. Um, I, you know, measles is thankfully a very rare thing now, thanks to the marvellous vaccinations, but it was very common in the 1960s and I had it. And one of the things that happens when you get measles is an, an intense dislike of light. Um, any light hitting your eyes is agony. Mm. And I certainly had that and uh, confined to home as I was with the measles, I had to sit in a darkened room and my father, who was kindly disposed, um, realised that I could do with some entertainment. So he put on the radiogram, the uh, big old valve thing in the corner. Mm. And uh, the light from the dial, I remember, stinging my eyes. But I also remember, you know, wincing, but gravitating to it and starting twiddling and making my way around stuff on the dial and 
exploring things. The dial says Hilversum. What is yeah. that? Belgrade. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> you know, and you'd find that you, you'd even find those mysterious uh, Russian numbers stations. You know, the numbers stations. Nobody's really knows what they are to this day with a yes. mysterious voice reading out numbers. Uh, and just, I just did an enormous amount of listening then. And I think that strengthened my resolve that I wanted to, wanted to be on the radio. This sounds really interesting. Mm-hmm. And alongside that, the sort of practical side of it, I think later was um, helped by the fact that my father was interviewed quite often on the radio and television about Russian matters. Every time there was some, you know, bear in mind, this is Cold War era. So there was extreme sensitivity about, are we about to end our days with a nuclear conflict with Russia? Mm. And um, we lived at the time in Glasgow, just across from the BBC Scotland headquarters. And on multiple occasions, I would tag along with my dad when he was going in to be interviewed. And I'd sit in the control room and see the studio engineers setting up the link with London and balancing the sound and so on. And I found that really interesting as well. And that, I think, definitely steered me towards it. And I guess you took a a hospital radio route, which was one of your first ventures into sitting behind the microphone. Yeah, um, I was developing a great interest in radio and trying to work out how things worked and who did what and, and you know what might be a way in uh, for a young lad. Uh, I'm looking at this, you know, a sort of 12, 13, 14-year-old, so of course there isn't a way in, but mm. it doesn't stop you uh, rehearsing and in the privacy of your own home, especially when your father's bought a tape recorder. Ooh, I can record myself. Ooh. Uh, and um, eventually I, I found out somewhere about the hospital radio service. I think I read a, an article in the newspaper about it and uh, thought, oh, I'll find out about this. So I, I wrote to them and uh, you know, was invited to come in and have a look round. But it was explained to me that there was an age limit of 16 and I wasn't 16 yet. But uh, mm. I made a mental note that on 16th birthday plus one, I'd be, I'd be going back. <laughs> and uh, yeah. So was it in hospital radio or was it at BBC Glasgow that you uh, first encountered Ken Bruce? Uh, that was at Hospital Radio, and uh, I'd been there. This would be 1976, and uh, I'd only been there a few months, uh, but I was uh, already known for being technically savvy with the gear. Mm-hmm. And uh, when the manager of the local car hire company came along for a look round, because he'd always fancied doing some radio presenting, I was assigned to show him how to work the mixing desk. And uh, that was Mr. Bruce. And it was apparent from the moment he sat down at it that, uh, oh, yeah, he was, you know, he was going to be a natural at it. He knew just what to do. Uh, and uh, with minimal uh, coaching on what you press to make it happen, he did. And he was away. And, yeah, tremendous uh, straight away. And he was then recruited by BBC Scotland fairly shortly afterwards. I'm thinking probably in 1977, 76, 77, uh, he joined BBC Scotland as an announcer. And um, I thought, well, that's very exciting. I wonder if there's room for any more. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And then, then, I mean, timing. You, isn't timing just one of the, the key words in this business mm-hmm. in, in several different contexts? Mm. But for me, the timing was that in 1978, BBC Scotland 
were launching a new radio service called Radio Scotland. Uh, previously, there, this the, the main sort of Scottish input had been an opt-out of Radio 4, which would come and do local news and a few things, but otherwise it was just relaying Radio 4. And they wanted to start a full-time service for uh, Scotland. So they advertised in The Guardian, as they did those days, uh, for presenters for BBC Radio Scotland. Well, needless to say, I applied, and so did thousands of others. And uh, I got fairly promptly a rejection letter saying, you know, thank you very much for your interest. Goodbye. I thought, oh, oh, well, that was, uh, that was a forlorn hope, wasn't it? Well, this is where timing and luck and so on come into play. Somebody I knew from Hospital Radio was now in charge of uh, the presentation department for Radio Scotland. And he was aware of my work and my capabilities at the Hospital Radio station. With about just over a week to go before the launch of the new stations, one of the people who'd been appointed to the jobs decided that on reflection, this wasn't for him and quit. Ah, That left them with a hole in the rotor. And they knew they needed somebody who could come in and do it with minimal training. Uh, and uh, so this friend of mine basically rang me up and said, you know, they've, you know that letter they sent you saying, no, thank you. He said, very quickly, write back and tell them they've made a mistake. So <laughs> I said, what, seriously? He said, yeah, yeah. So, so I did. So about two days later, I was in for a, an interview and a quick voice test uh, in the studio and uh, do a quick music show and so on and so on, just to prove that I could do it. And within a day or so of that, I was offered a contract and yeah. I started work for them two days before the new station launched. Fantastic. And I had to start on an engineer temporarily. I started on engineering grade because the BBC had never given the grade for that job to someone of my age before. And they had to ask London if it was all right. And was it all right for me to work the shifts? Because they weren't sure whether that was legal. Wow. What age would you have been, Charles? Uh, I was 18. Wow. That's incredible. Wow. I, so, I, I, when the stars align, it's, it is, it's, it's wonderful. But your performance muscles were finely toned at this point you know they, they weren't flabby at all you you were you were so used to broadcasting even by the tender age of 18 that you were pretty sharp on the microphone i'm guessing uh, I, well i knew the fundamentals um mm. but uh, you, you never uh, you never stop learning you never <sighs> stop learning and uh, you know i was i was definitely i was wet behind the ears and raw around the edges but um you know yeah. you learn as you go yes. you develop the trade yeah i i, I understand what you're saying as well as working on Radio 2, you got the chance to become involved with uh, a little offshoot of BBC television called BBC Events and Entertainment. It wasn't the BBC Entertainment Department. This was the, the department which would produce the, the Royal Tournament, the uh, Changing of the Guard, the... Trooping the Colour, that was another production that I was that I was thinking of that was covered by events and entertainment. And you then got the opportunity, I guess, as a voice merchant, for want of a better expression, to commentate on the Lord's Mayor show. Yes, I did the Lord Mayor's show once and only once. Ah, yeah. okay. They never, they never asked me back. Um, it's, 
So it's a funny thing, the uh, the Lord Mayor's show. I remember at the time that I did it, uh, there'd been some discussion at the BBC about, uh, isn't this a bit London-centric? Isn't this isn't it, it's awfully sort of square mile-ish? Are you mm. sure this is of interest around the, the country for national broadcast? And I, I was told that on several occasions, uh, decisions had been made that the Lord Mayor's show would be televised no longer by the BBC. Mm. But then at sort of chairman of the board level and city of London level, I say, old boy, it would happen in an ear and mystically it would be restored to the schedule. Excellent. Excellent. Uh, but it, I mean, it's an extraordinary um, experience, the Lord Mayor's show. Certainly amazing to, um, if you ever get to go to the rehearsal, because a few days ahead of it, uh, ahead of the real show, which happens at a weekend, on a Wednesday or a Thursday morning, in order not to close things down unnecessarily on the streets of the City of London, they'll do a full dress rehearsal at something like three or four in the morning. So mm. you pitch up, you know, outside St Paul's Cathedral at four a.m., and there, out of the, and this is probably November, you know, so it's it's dark, it's misty and it's dark and it's probably raining. And out of the mists and gloom comes the glittering golden coach and horses. And this. And I remember when um, I was walking alongside it on the morning of the rehearsal that I attended, uh, as we passed down one street, um, some curtains twitched and a bloke looked out from what I presume was his bedroom to see what all this racket was. And it's this fairy tale procession going past in the middle of the night. His jaw was... <laughs> Down at the floor. <laughs> uh, was that before or after you got the job with uh, Events Entertainment as the stalwart presenter of Come Dancing, which was the precursor of Strictly Come Dancing? I think uh, I think it was during my Come Dancing years that the Lord Mayor's show um, mm. came my way once, but only once. Mm. <laughs> it's one of those. It's a, it's one of those slight niggles with me. Uh, I, I things went a bit awry. Um, a combination of things, but I mean, it, you know, we, we got through the broadcast all right, but um, it, some aspects of it could probably have been neater. Hmm. I suspect my badge for e event broadcasting was probably clipped at that point. Hmm. Um, but uh, there we are. So it's, it's fun to do. So you you could have been the Tom Fleming, although oh, you... Tom Fleming, one of the people I so admired. Um, in the in the business, Tom Fleming as a royal event and a national event commentator, mm. absolutely glorious. I got to tell him. I got to tell him an edited version of that once. I met him in the corridor and said, "You know how much I've admired your work on this um, these programs over the years. Just you know, untouchable." And uh, yeah, he smiled modestly and said, oh, "Very kind, thank you." <laughs> God bless him. God bless him. Come dancing. It, it was part of the fabric of the British nation uh, for, for many, many years. Uh, and heavyweight presenters like Sir Terry and Angela Rippon uh, had presented it low these many years. You got the opportunity as an Envision presenter. That must have been rather daunting, having spent so long behind the microphone. Suddenly you're standing in front of the camera. Yeah, Um I don't know. I never minded. I don't. I don't think the camera particularly likes me. Um, yeah, 
I get, I get by. Uh, but uh, yeah, it was certainly uh, not without its challenges, not least because we didn't have auto queue um, mm. back in the uh, in those days. So you had to remember a certain amount of stuff. But I mean, I, I was fortunate. I was never I was never alone as the main presenter. I, w- I was you know either co-presenter or commentator doing extra bits uh, mm. in between. Uh, so the, the load was always very much shared. I mean, the first couple of series I did, David Jacobs was presenting. And it was a funny old thing. I'd, uh, I'd been on the same radio station as David Jacobs for some years by then, but we'd never actually met mm. because he'd always be in a studio in the basement and I'd always be in a studio on either the first floor or the third floor. And there was no particular you know, reason to cross paths. So we actually first met uh, on Come Dancing in Blackpool. Mm. Uh- he was an extraordinary character, David. Um, One of the great legends of broadcasting, of course. Absolutely. And uh, it was such experience. Very funny man. Brilliant mimic. And he started his career as a, as a boy actor uh, on shows like The Navy Lark, doing extra voices and so on. And I was always a, a bit sad that the on-air image, certainly in the latter years, was very straight. Uh, his radio programs were, you know, beautifully but formally presented, and uh, the audience I, very seldom got a glimpse into the the really funny side of the man. Mm. But uh, particularly, you know, in the in the hotel bar after the show, with a, a nice glass of scotch, relaxing in a chair, David's jokes, um, filthy jokes, yeah. Jewish jokes, filthy Jewish jokes. Uh, he had <laughs> he had them all, and he had. Uh, as an old-fashioned gentleman, he also had a special sector of jokes which wouldn't be told until the ladies had retired. Oh, what a gent. <laughs> what a gent. Around that time, I'm guessing now 20 years ago, was that when you built your own recording studio, commercial, uh, commercial enterprise, which was a recording studio in Soho? Yeah. Um, now, when did I do that? Uh, because uh, it's interesting that we're having this conversation at this time because that chapter is just ending. Ah, um, I think it's more than 20 years. It was before the millennium, wasn't it? I started my first sound studio just for myself in rented premises in central London in, I think, about 1996, mm-hmm. because technology was changing. And instead of uh, the likes of me having to drive thousands and thousands of miles a year going around radio stations and studios around the country uh, doing commercial voiceovers, uh, the technology to enable us to do them remotely uh, was developing. And uh, I was one of, I think I was about number five uh, in the UK in terms of voiceovers getting their own kit for remote working. Mm. And uh, yeah, I set up this studio in a basement in Hoburn just for myself mm. and toodled away there. And then as the months and years wore on, word got about that, I had this facility and one or two others came out of the woodwork and said, oh, any chance we could share? Mm. And uh, that that we did, and that worked really well. And then there came a time when we had to make a decision. There was a fork in the road moment because there we were in our basement of an art gallery in Soho, in uh, Hoban. In the building next door was an artist's studio, which set up a sculpting workshop. Uh-oh. So hitting blocks of stone <laughs> with hammers and chisels. And uh, so we'd be trying to do the voiceovers and you'd hear <laughs> the wall and uh, that would be rather difficult. And we tried and tried to come sort of uh, 
to some sort of understanding with the sculptors. And it didn't go very well. <laughs> Not least, I have to tell you, the, the artistic director of the sculptors' workshop, who won't hear this, so it'll be all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, the artistic director of the sculptors' workshop, uh, he was a very short man, um, you know, probably about four foot ten, mm-hmm. and with short man syndrome. Uh-oh. And he also didn't like some hairy disc jockey telling him that the sculpting banging wasn't very helpful. Anyway, the landlords set up a meeting between the two of us to try and um, hammer out some sort of deal. And uh, it it didn't go well. And towards the conclusion of it, uh, I said, well, one thing's for sure, I can't afford to lose too many more sessions to the Phantom Hammerer. And he puffed his chest out, drew himself up to his full, not very extensive height and said, what you refer to as a phantom hammerer, I refer to as a 100% legitimate artist working with 100% legitimacy. <laughs> and I said, you're a legitimate artist, my phantom hammerer, love. <laughs> End of meeting. <laughs> so anyway, uh, that's the fork in the roads. So we had to decide, right, we've got to get out of here. What are we going to do? Are we going to say up with this we will not continue or are we going to take it forward and the really the question was if we take it forward that means commercial premises and a business mm. and that was the, the decision that uh, i made mm. and set about trying to find commercial premises and we found this place in hoban in in soho get the locations mixed up found this place in soho in old compton street and we set up there in just at the start of 1999. Mm. And the business has run there ever since, and it is just about to come to a close. Uh, you are, in fact, the first public recipient of this news. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry to hear it. I'm flattered to hear it. But I'm sorry to hear it. To we everything, had... there is a season, as the, as the good book tells mm. us. And yeah. Um, yeah. to businesses, there is a season, and I, I, it's I, time... I... It's time. The the uh, close down of the pandemic uh, really brought things into focus. Mm-hmm. Some businesses got business rates, holidays and so on. We didn't. Mm. Uh, so through months and months of earning nothing, hundreds of pounds were disappearing out every month in yeah. the direction of business rates. Yeah. And the the change of ways of working around the industry that people have had to make to deal with the pandemic and to be able to carry on. Uh, a certain number of genies have come out of bottles and will not return to them. Uh, so it is time, sadly, to mm. take advantage of the end of the lease and pull down the shutters. Great shame. But I do hope you hold on to your the name of the company, which is A1 Vox. Great name. Well, it was uh, it was named because voiceovers was always going to be the, the core of our activities. And Vox is Latin for voice. Mm. And um, not only was it going to be the core of our activities, but it was going to be a place, and it was a place where actors and voice talents would always feel welcome, be well looked after, be understood, and find themselves at the heart of the of the enterprise. Yeah. And I'm very proud to say they did. Yeah. And, of course, you were way ahead of the curve. Your A1 Vox was pressed into service uh, on the National Lottery Live on many an occasion when the voice of the balls himself, the great Lord Alan Didicote, 
Ballsy uh, decided reluctantly sometimes to take a holiday and a break. And you were the cavalry that was called for to sit in Alan Dedicote's place, calling the numbers as they dropped uh, on the National Lottery. 23! Yes, exactly yes. that. Now, that that was a hell of a job and a hell of a chair to sit in, wasn't it? It was. Um it wasn't the live television aspect of it that uh, gave me the the slight heebie-jeebies. I'm absolutely fine with live TV and radio. That's that's me. That's what mm. I do. Mm. It was the fact that Dedicote never got it wrong. Mm. <laughs> yes, <laughs> he was yeah. uh, he was incredibly quick and smooth at it, and you know, it, yes, huge shoes to fill. Yeah, yeah. I remember we uh, Bob said we need to call Charles something. Uh, and so we, we pushed around various ideas. So I think I'll call him Spare Ballsy because it, <laughs> it sounded vaguely sexy at, for eight o'clock. Yeah. But it kind of told the story as well. It's better than what one of my uh, uh, colleagues and friends came up with. with, with, with um, so you're a standby voice of the balls, yes. So you sort of one up in the tree, yes. So balls up then. <laughs> <laughs> oh, touche. Excellent. Top man. Lovely wordplay. Yeah, it was. A, they were. They were. You know, it was a lovely thing to do. Um, mm. And not least, the vision mixer I always found was a was a tremendously encouraging and uh, and, and um, steadying presence. The great Catherine Edmonds. Uh, well, yeah, she was one of them. I, yes, of course. Being a vague insomniac now, I'm very au fait with the uh, the shipping forecast on Radio Four around about close time, close down time when they hand over to uh, the World Service. And I've heard you announce the shipping forecast when you had a stint as a Radio 4 announcer. That must be a bugger to do, the shipping forecast. It's certainly not one you want to do without preparation mm. because um, it's, you know, it's about 12 minutes of steady reading. Mm. And certainly in the Radio 4 close down sequence it's 12 minutes of minutes of steady reading which take you to playing the national anthem and hitting the greenwich time signal at one o'clock mm. now the time signal is going to start at uh, midnight 59 55 whatever uh, therefore you need to play the national anthem at whatever it is you know mm -hmm. um, 48 seconds before that or, or whatever so you know exactly when you need to finish Woe betide the person who ventures into a 12-minute read without working out tactics to make sure that you're uh, on time throughout. I understand. Because it, it's a kaleidoscope of words, phrasing, strange names, and indeed numbers. I mean, it, it's a kaleidoscope which would blow my brains out. So how you cope with it is, is absolutely astonishing, even with a bit of rehearsal. Well, the, uh, the, I mean, the, the absolute... It, the key is the timing, and um, the only way that I know of, of making sure is that is that you time sections of it and uh, write on the pieces of paper what time it ought to be when you start this bit, mm -hmm. and then you know if you're you know plus five seconds there or minus five seconds there. Yes, and one of the core skills, certainly in the in the voiceover world, one of the core skills is you know about being very aware of your timing because doing commercial voiceovers, um, you know, if a, if a client has bought a 30 second advert, it's 30 seconds. That's it. Mm. If it's an ITV um, telecommercial, uh, the 30 seconds is 29 seconds. Uh, 
So when you read a script through for commercial purposes and uh, the producer or engineer says, uh, you know, that's great, but it was 32. Can you take two and a half seconds off that on the next read? You need to be able to do that. Yeah. Uh, so you know, those, those skills very much transfer to doing things like the shipping forecast. Sure. And you just have to be methodical. There, there are multiple ways in which you could lose your place, for example. Uh, so you just have to be pretty methodical about how you make your way through it. But I, uh, I loved doing it. And, you know, it was a funny thing when I started doing the Radio 4 job, which I didn't do for very long before I had to move to Scala Radio. Mm. But um, there was a, a feeling of full circle about it because the last things I will have done at BBC Scotland before I left Radio Scotland in 1981 would be the shipping forecast. Ah, uh, so at Radio 4, when I pitched up there and they were sort of training me to do the Radio 4 announcing job, mm. they were a bit surprised to find that I knew how to do the shipping forecast mm. because, yes, I just realized to my shock that it was something like 38 years since I'd last done it. Wow. <laughs> and also, what a great bookend to your BBC career. Actually, I'm going to suggest your BBC mm. career is over. But to that, at that section of your broadcasting career at the BBC, before you moved on to the aforementioned Scala Radio, of course, you are a founder, member, broadcaster of Scala Radio, which has been up and running now for two years. Yes. Yeah. Uh, you present The Breakfast Show. How did you land the job at Scala? Did they approach you? Yeah, um, it was a... It was a very, very strange thing. Timing again, uh, extraordinary. So I was working, well, where was I at the time? I, I was working BBC local radio. Mm. I was working at BBC Radio Oxford and uh, doing early mornings there. And it was becoming very clear that my time in BBC local radio was coming to an end. They're on a mission to dispose of old farts like me and to get new farts in uh, to talk about things that a BBC local radio audience is apparently interested in. Hmm. You know, things like piercings, tattoos, <laughs> makeup tips. Uh, I, I mean, I, I don't wish to sound bitter about this. And the BBC is a you know, <laughs> most marvellous organisation, but they've gone completely bonkers on local radio at the moment. And they are engaged in a sport that is not unknown in the bbc which is piss off the audience you've got and fail to find a new one yes uh, i may yet be proved wrong on this and i'd be delighted to be proved wrong on this i really would because i don't want it to die mm. but you know they they have decided to reformat bbc local radio in pursuit of a younger audience now that's a very daring thing to do for radio anyway but you might just about get away with it if you've got a huge marketing budget and you can do what Capital and Heart and so on do, which is to run big television commercial campaigns to support your, your new change and your new identity and so on. Yes. When your marketing budget is £10 uh, on a good day, um, you're not going to get marketing support there. And just changing the output and hoping that your new young, young audience will notice and mm. join you is, I think, a bit of a reach. Anyway, I have digressed. So my time at BBC Local Radio was coming to an end, and it came to an end, and it came to a not, not terribly happy end, certainly in terms of my relationships with the management there, because I'm, who enjoys being disposed of? Hmm. 
uh, you know, towards the end, they, they had reduced me to doing one hour in the morning between six and seven ahead of the main breakfast show. Mm. But I responded to that in the only way I know how. And actually, I've, I've worked out over the years, I do some of my best broadcasting when I'm slightly pissed off. So <laughs> I just focused on making that hour uh, the best I possibly could. I'll come back to that hour in a little uh, a little later in this extended mm. outpouring of twaddle. Uh, and uh, anyway, that came to an end. So I thought, right, what am I going to do now? So I'd um, made friends with Radio 4 and uh, taken some shifts there as a continuity announcer. Uh, and I've always enjoyed doing continuity announcing. It's a, it's an, a discipline I enjoy. It's a, it's a timing challenge and a technical challenge and a style challenge because as the continuity announcer on a station like Radio 4, you're there to do the gear changes. Mm. You're there to smooth the path between the shows and interest people in other shows they might enjoy and so on. Ah. And as, as a professional, as part of the professional skill set, I think the idea of vocal gear changing and so on is an, is an, an under-recognized under but very important skill. Mm, that putt is so important isn't it? To, to, to make that transition smoothly from a really hard hitting documentary type of show into something rather more light. Yeah. And, um, you know, some, I, I think it's a skill that is being lost, you know, mm. in a lot of areas I, I've heard some, I've heard some alleged continuity announcing on some TV channels that I won't particularly identify, which has, I think been you know shocking in terms of lack of, sensitivity to the surrounding program material mm. anyway so uh, i'm uh, keeping life and soul together doing shifts on radio four and some other bits and pieces and then we went away on holiday and i was i must say thinking hmm i better enjoy this holiday because there might not be very many more holidays uh, for a while because times are looking a bit thin mm. and uh, i was lying by the pool in a hotel in spain with uh, my partner and a couple of friends who were with us. And my phone went ding. And I thought, oh, I wonder who, who's after me. And I picked up my phone. And it was a text message from somebody who I used to work with as a producer at Radio 2 back in the 1980s. Mm. And it said, I'm working on some new radio projects. I wonder if you might be interested in any of them. And something told me that that was a big call. Mm. It was one of those, you know, tingling the tingling the spine. Yeah, your antenna twitches, doesn't it? Yeah, because yeah. of who it was and what I, the sort of things I knew he'd been doing. Yeah, I thought. Mm -hmm. hmm. So anyway, I, I sort of got back in touch. Said, um, "Yeah, absolutely. You know, what is it?" And it all went very cloak and dagger at that point because. What was going on was that the splendid Bauer Media were developing a new classical music station, but nobody could know this, not least because they were very keen that the, the opposition and the market generally didn't find out what they were up to. Mm -hmm. So it was very cloak and dagger, non-disclosure agreements and this, that and the other. And then we started, we, I couldn't go to their building in London because they operate lots of radio stations there and you know, you're bound to bump into somebody, mm -hmm. uh, all our meetings happened in shady corners in pubs and things. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, it turned out, well, it's a, you know, it's a new classical music station and we'll, we want to bring something of the feel of Radio 2, but with 
classical music. So something something of the informality and the and the welcoming feel of Radio Two, but with a classical repertoire. And um, you know, would I be interested? And I thought, well, yeah, not least because although I've never been a classical presenter before, I grew up with classical music around me. Mm-hmm. I'm not a stranger to it. Mm. And uh, you know, because the, the, the family in, in which I grew up was very much classical listeners and they, they took me to classical concerts and so on. So I thought, well, I, yeah, I can deal, I can deal with this repertoire and the, and the Radio 2 style presenting. Yes, I can do that. I've, I've done yes. a bit. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and um, yeah, they said, um, well, uh, there's, a, there's a top secret signing to do the mid-morning show. Uh, who's known at the time the working title of the radio station was Quaver. It was never going to be called Quaver on the air, but mm-hmm. um, in the company it was called Project Quaver. Yes. And the top the top secret signing for mid morning was known as Quaver Man. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, uh, it didn't take me terribly long to work out that Quaver Man was Simon Mayo. Yes, indeed. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, you know, piecing one thing and another together. Yes. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it was it was lovely. I mean, it, it's the first time I've been involved in the launch of a station since Radio Scotland in 1978. Mm. And there's something special about putting something you know, brand new onto the air. Yeah. And it was very nice to get to work with Simon every day, because although we'd known each other at Radio 2, we'd not particularly worked together. So very much, you know, hello, how are you doing? Yeah, but, mm-hmm. you know, that was it. And we, in fact, struck up, struck up a great rapport on the air at, uh, at Scala Radio. Uh, yeah, I remember. I think we have... We have uh, complimentary senses of humour, you know. Yes, uh, yeah, exactly that. And the, your breakfast show is—it's a lovely format because if you don't want to be shouted at in the morning, yours is the station to listen to because it's—it's it's not what I would call heavy classical. I'm reluctant to call it light classical because there's some magnificent classical pieces, but a lot of people. Uh, from my walk of life are slightly frightened by classical music or were frightened by Mm. classical music until it was pointed out that actually, if you listen to scores of movies or indeed television shows, they are performed by huge orchestras. Actually, you analyze the music. It's very classically orientated. So actually classical music, one should not be afraid of because you get it all the time when you go to the cinema or watch TV. Yeah. And the the whole ethos at Scala Radio from the start has been to think about roughly a sort of 70%, 30% mix. 70%, yes, you'd recognize that as classical. Mm. 30%, things that might surprise you, yeah. whether they are film scores or video game scores. I mean, some fantastic musical work going on in video game scores. Video games, when they were in their infancy, it would be... I hesitate to say it, but the Rolf Harris stylophone sort of music you yes. know, on, on a cheap synthesizer. Yeah. But of course, video games quickly found their footing and there is huge, huge money in the industry. Uh, so they're in many cases putting the, the same sort of budget and creativity into the soundtrack of the game as would go into a big budget feature film. Yeah, for sure. Yes, I understand. Um, and working on The Breakfast Show, you and all the other breakfast show presenters, I think got us all through lockdown because it was to the radio that we turned during those darker days last year uh, when we were sat at home twiddling our 
our thumb is thinking, how bad is this going to get? And, and, and great voices of reason and eloquence would entertain us. So thank you for that. It's, I, I know that radio has been very much appreciated you know, during that time. And Chet, there's one, we've had a lot of messages from listeners saying how much they've enjoyed you know, the company and, uh, and the reassurance and so on. Mm. There's one that's stuck with me. And it really, it really moved me. It was a little, very short message. Uh, and it said, let me get the words right. It said, thank you so much for the company during these dark times. You're a voice in the room when there's nobody here. Yeah. Beautiful. I thought, beautiful. Thank you. That's, yeah, that's, that's just glorious. Yeah, absolutely. Which squares with, with Terry and Ken and, and you, you're, you're talking to me. You're not talking to the nation. And I yeah. think that's a great skill. And it's, it's interesting. It very often when guests from maybe from the world of television or stars from other media come and do a bit of radio, mm -hmm. they, they have a tendency to come on at the beginning and say, hello, everyone. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you've, you've blown the one-to-one -one illusion straight away. Absolutely that. I agree. What I love is about your show as well uh, are the lateral thinking questions. They are remarkable. I, I love those very much. I never get one of them. The sort of questions whereby a person lives on the 10th floor. When he gets in the lift, he only press, he, he presses, always presses number seven, gets out at number seven and walks up the last three floors to where he lives. Why is that? Those kinds of questions that you, you, yeah. you pitch to, to <laughs> the viewers, uh, to, to the listeners, forgive me. I think they're great. I love those, those thinky things. Yeah. It, 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 it's become a really popular bit of the show. And uh, it, it is just you know, something to something to make you go, hey, what? Uh, or try and work it out. The great thing about Scarlet, I think, is that you've been given all the broadcasters on Scarlet have been given that latitude, that legroom to build the audience. It wasn't at all. We've been running three three months, and our audience is still this. Uh, we better pull, pull the whole thing. I, I love the fact that you've been given such enormous latitude and flexibility to build and grow because I think one needs a kind of anchor in the day. So that if you turn on the radio, you know, you're going to be listening to this and, uh, and that's a kind of a feel good factor, isn't it? Yeah. And our, um, our proprietors, Bauer Media, uh, which is a, at its heart, a family owned business from Germany. Uh, they're very, very wise about this and they, they're on a mission to, you know, to become an even bigger player in British commercial radio. Mm. And as part of that, they are willing to launch stations that will not ever be mass audience stations. You know, Scala Radio is one. We will, we will acquire an audience of a suitable size, but it's not all about the headline numbers. Mm. What it's about for the group is that between all their stations, they achieve a certain presence in UK commercial radio that they can then take to advertisers and say, you know, well, shop with us and this is what you get. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, we're a part of a pack of stations that, that they run, the multiple, uh, multiple different radio brands, including the really ingenious Absolute Radio, uh, which has offshoots for Absolute 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s. And at peak times, like breakfast there, you get the same presenter presenting the breakfast show 
on all those different brands. Mm-hmm. It's really they're, they're technically very, very clever, and it really um, uh, excites me on the technical front. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the same presenter sits there and does his entertainment, then presses yeah. presses the button, and all the different music starts on all the different stations. We live in it. We do, we do live in fascinating times with modern technology uh, and developing radio uh, still further. I, I, it must be, from, from my point of view, it's fascinating, but from your point of view, from your side of the microphone, it must be just brilliant. It is. And uh, you know, I don't lose sight of the fact that when I started doing radio, you know, CDs hadn't been invented. Um, so it was all uh, you know, vinyl records and tape. Yep. And that was it. Yeah. <laughs> And you're working from home, of course. Now you're you're driving um, driving the desk from the from privacy of your own home. And quite frankly, nobody knows. Or no, everybody knows, but nobody notices yeah. because the standard and the quality is is the same, uh, which is marvelous. I think. Yeah, and uh, and you know it it gets to satisfy another to scratch another of my little itches because I'm in a home studio which I have built. Yeah. Um, so it's it's my it's my purple palace because the uh, the acoustic treatment on the walls is purple. So excellent. This is the purple palace. The great thing is, as well, of course, having worked on social hours all your broadcasting life, you could actually I'm not suggesting you do this, but you could actually roll out of bed and open up the microphone and say good morning. I could. I don't. No, no. <laughs> I don't because I'm such a creature of habit, um, and it would really, it, I wouldn't be in the right zone yeah. mentally. I understand. Uh, that's that. what I did. So uh, no, I'm still, you know, up at a sensible time, uh, showered, breakfasted, hair washed, and so on, and uh, and Good. ready to go to work. Yeah, yeah, because the psyche's right. Exactly. You're yeah. in your jammers, ready to. Yeah, I love that. Um, I'm going to wrap this up now, but not before. I spin you back to something you alluded to when you were at BBC Radio Oxford and you were working that one hour show, uh, which you've made as good as you possibly could. Um, Is there anything that you wanted to elaborate? Yes, I did did mean to come back to this. Well done. Um, And it is this. No matter how cheesed off you are, you give it your best. Uh And that is partly just your own professional pride. And it's partly because you never know who's listening. And what I didn't know at all was that uh, listening at his home in Oxfordshire was the, was the boss at Bower Radio, uh, who was hearing what I was doing on Radio Oxford and liking the sound of it. Fantastic. So just a, it's, it's just a reminder, you know, that it's not just your professional private. You just, yeah, you always give it your best. Yeah. And you have done low these many, many decades in which you've been broadcasting. Thank you very much indeed for your time. www.charlesnove.com is Charles's website address. Scala Radio. Explain to us how you can get Scala Radio. Uh, we're on DAB Digital Radio across the country. Mm-hmm. And uh, also on Sky Channel 0216. And there's a very good Scala Radio app available from the appropriate app store for your device, uh, which will allow you to listen to the station and also to revisit shows you may have missed. Yeah. And um, uh, there's probably some other method. Oh, well, online, of course, scalaradio.co.uk. Sure. Uh, and also, and you can listen to Charles between uh, 7.30 a.m. and 10 o'clock every weekday. Could you, do, could you sign me off? Um, I'm gonna. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna. I'm not gonna clip this, but I'd just like to hear it once before I say goodbye. Could you please say you've been listening to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds, but in a in a Charles No voice? You've been listening to Behind the Scenes with Colin Edmonds.
<laughs> Let that be a terrible warning to you. <laughs> well said, sir. Charles, thank you so much for your time. I do appreciate it. Uh, great uh, pleasure. And uh, hopefully I'll have you back very, very soon as well. We can, can continue this conversation. Thank you, Charles. Thanks for listening, everybody. See you next week.